So this is the first episode of a discussion of Andrea Wolf's The Invention of Nature, which is the biography of Alexander von Humboldt. So Cody, as you know, I usually, I usually don't introduce the guests on my podcast because usually the episodes are about the guest. And then I think that's kind of redundant. But I guess this time we're talking about a book and I have a co-reader, co-host, whatever you're going to call it. Yeah. And I'm joined by Cody Commons, who has already been on the podcast as a guest in the fourth episode or something very early on. Anyway, fellow podcaster, fellow PhD student in social slash cognitive neuroscience or something like that. Yep. Thanks for having me on, Ben. I'm excited to do this. Yes. Well, thank you for coming. And the reason, you know, I asked you is because you're very interested in travel and anthropology and these kind of things. And I thought that would be, I don't know whether you're able to add any kind of specific insight, but at least you'd be interested. Absolutely. No, when you, when you sent me a message uh, offering to, to read this book together, I was super excited. So when this book came out, I was like, oh yeah, this, this sounds right at my alley. Super interesting. And then I got a, uh, I think I downloaded like the e, the ebook from the library, uh, Seattle Public Library at the time and never got around to reading it. So I was really thrilled to be able to read it. And certainly my, I guess my kind of inclination to it is that I love people who combine going out there into the world and their abstract theories and ideas about how that world works. And, you know, humble, obviously class A example of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Also, this book is like, I feel like every German's dream combining like so many great figures of, of German intellectual history. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, every page is sort of like, yeah, uh, you know, like there's, there's a lot of great uh, uh, German figures in it. So yeah, yeah, I guess we'll get a, a bit more to that later. I mean, for me, it's just funny that it's all that they were all in Jena, which is such a random place now nowadays. Anyway, but uh, just about the format. So I'm assuming people have read the book, you know, I mean, I guess this is not a book that's going to have spoilers per se, but it probably makes more sense if people have read the book, but like he dies in the end. Uh, oh, I haven't read that book yet. <laughs> no. So uh, today Humboldt, we're only not alive parts still. one and two. Uh, so I don't know what happens after that. As far as I've read, he's still alive. <laughs> do you have a like a few points or how i mean usually we we do this each person has like a few things they found interesting or something and then you know it's, it's a very rough structure yeah i definitely got um some notes here and uh some overarching themes that i see emerging in in the book as well as the sort of individual uh plot points that happen so uh, maybe we could just start off by saying uh let's see i think People uh, probably have heard the name Humboldt. They may not uh, remember, you know, there might be one that's like, yeah, what, what exactly did that, that guy do again? And when, when, yeah, when yeah, exactly definitely. was that? Uh, so just making sure that basic point is covered. So his birthday was uh, 14 September 1769. And a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about in this episode happened right around that turn of the century, uh, around 1800, is, the, is, is when he was uh, doing his big travels through South America, which is what we're going to be talking about in, in the in his big travels for this section, and known as a figure of, of romanticism, uh, which we'll talk about. And then, you know, basically this guy who took a lot of these amazing enlightenment ideas, uh, had cool intellectual friends back home. And took these ideas out on the road uh, and 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 connected them with with nature and and all this stuff. So uh, that's kind of the epicenter around which all of the interesting things that he did and and all the stuff we're going to talk about is is, is kind of built. Um, at least that's that would be my uh, paragraph summary of it. Okay, good. I'm going to read a like two three sentence per chapter. For the novels, at least, I found it very useful because I don't know about your memory, but mine is. Uh... <laughs> very porous uh so i usually forget most of this stuff anyway so i just read a brief summary chapter by chapter so prologue humboldt substantially influenced our views of nature and once was one of the most famous people on the planet now he's largely forgotten but this book kind of tries to bring him back chapter one humboldt grew up very privileged in berlin throughout his studies he's ambitious restless and very lonely despite his privilege he doesn't mind spending hours in mines helping improve the working condition of miners and performing experiments about electricity and the nervous system on himself. Chapter 2. Humboldt frequently visits Goethe, um, with whom he discusses art and science, Kant, and does all sorts of scientific experiments. 
Chapter 3, shortly after his mother's death, Humboldt decides to explore the world. After unsuccessfully trying to get to various places, he convinces the king of Spain to allow him to visit the Spanish, the Spanish colonies in South America. In 1799, Humboldt arrives in New Andalusia in today's Venezuela. Chapter 4, Humboldt explores Venezuela and makes huge amounts of measurements, takes plants and animal samples. He also warns of the negative effects of humans on the environment, especially deforestation. Chapter 5, still in Venezuela, Humboldt et al. travel through the desert and then about three months through the rainforest by boat. The multitude of animals and plants is fascinating, but also tries to kill them regularly. Chapter 6, Humboldt et al. travel to Cuba and send some of their findings back to Europe. Then, on the off chance that one of Humboldt's heroes might be in Lima a few months later, they return to South America and explore the Andes on the way to Lima. Chapter 7, Humboldt almost reaches the top of Adenotopinansis. Kimborazzo. Uh, he draws his Naturgemälde and reaches Lima. He leaves the southern hemisphere, going to Mexico. And finally, chapter 8, Humboldt travels across Mexico and then to the US to visit President Jefferson, who, by this account, seems to have been a pretty cool dude if you ignore the whole slavery thing. Humboldt provides Jefferson with huge amounts of information about the Americas. Um, yeah, one thing I found interesting in that you, I guess, kind of alluded to is this fact that and what they also talk about in the prologue is that Humboldt is kind of very famous, but also not. And I think, you know, I grew up in Germany. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, you, you of course know the name Humboldt. But the ironic thing is that probably the most famous thing with the name Humboldt is the university in Berlin, which is named after his brother. So the, in a way, I, I, I'm, you know, as you know, someone who grew up in Germany his entire school life, I don't think I really knew much about him. And it was really interesting to me when I read the prologue, I was really surprised by how famous he supposedly was because, yeah, even in Germany, it's like, yeah, this guy who, I don't know, did something a few hundred years ago or something. Yeah, there's a juxtaposition there between uh, Wolf's claim that, well, okay, no one really knows who this guy is kind of forgotten. And yet she goes on for, you know, pages to say, these are all of the things that, uh, you know, sort of he left as uh, memorials, like mostly having shit named after him that still exists today and so yeah i think there's uh it definitely it definitely gives you a little bit of like yeah i do want to know who this guy is and everything yeah so um, yeah. Uh, let's see i think for me uh the like number one point up front is that there's a very clear reason why the author why uh andrew wolf thinks that humble is interesting and worth studying today and this is her sort of main thesis of the book is that Humboldt was really the first person to see the whole of nature as interconnected. And she, it, it, it's kind of a refrain of the book almost that, that um, yeah, Humboldt is seeing the big picture of how ecosystems and people and animal and plants and all this stuff are connected uh, in a way that we uh, are more accustomed to in the natural world or in, in the modern world. But before Humboldt's time, uh, no one had ever really thought about in such a manner and that he was the first person to to bring this forward. So I have this this quote from the, the prologue, uh, which starts off him climbing a mountain, doing, you know, crazy uh, travel adventure things. And so he's he's on the top of this mountain. Well, close to the top of the mountain, I think. No, at, at the top of the mountain. Uh, this quote, uh, no one had ever come this high before. And no one had ever breathed such thin air as he stood at the top of the world, looking down upon the mountain range folded beneath him. Humboldt began to see the world differently. He saw the earth as one great living organism where everything was connected, conceiving a bold new vision of nature that still influences the way we understand the natural world today. And this, this is clearly why Wolf thinks that Humboldt is this person who we should get into and appreciate uh, the way he saw things and that, that innovation that he, he brought to things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is, you know, I have a few, yeah, a few times she mentioned something like this. But one thing I wonder is, do you think that's true? That he really was the first person? Because I remember, especially like one of the last kind of big biographies I read was uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Leonardo da Vinci. And he basically says the same thing about someone who lived a few years before that. I guess, I, I mean, I don't know anything about kind of Eastern religion and these kind of things, but it's from what I've heard, it also seemed also that like you know everything's connected and these kind of things. And I don't know, maybe Humboldt was more scientific about it. Maybe that was his addition there. But I don't know. I was surprised sometimes by some of the claims she made about how, yeah, that that he was supposedly the the first person to 
do that. But then again, I don't know much like, you know, history of science and those things. Do you have any insights here? Or? So I, I'm also skeptical of this. And I've, I've got two things to say on the matter. One is that there's a lot of assertion, you know, of, of the kind that I read where it's like, oh, yeah, Humboldt came up with this new vision of nature that feels unsupported both in the passages that she quotes Humboldt by, which Humboldt, if you, if you notice in this book, speaks only in half a line at a time. She really only quotes fragments of him, often placed at the end of the paragraph to sort of summarize what she has uh, said and everything. So we don't hear a lot from him directly or get a sense for his voice besides a few choice adjectives that he he, he chose. So uh, she cert- that's certainly her reading of, of the way he thought about things and everything like that. But that is definitely one of the things that I take issue stylistically in, in that blend between style and content of, of, the, of the, the way this book is rendered uh, that I, I also don't fully feel um, that I've been given enough information to really buy into that, to that claim. And I'm excited to see how it unfolds. And I definitely am willing to uh, go with her on that. But I, I also am very skeptical of that. So that, that's one thing. Yeah. And just one thing that also occurred to me here is that literally one of the people in the book, Goethe, who's, I don't know, whatever, 20 years older than or something like like a bit older than um, Humboldt. Yeah, about 20 years. He, he also has this whole thing about, you know, doing scientific experiments, but actually being a novelist. And I think he worked as a, he studied law first or something and working at a, I can't remember exactly about what, what Goethe's life trajectory exactly was, but he also had all these different influences and tried to kind of put them into one. And, you know, she even mentions Faust as this kind of, you know, about a scientist and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it seems... I don't know. I mean, as I said, like the one thing that I can see is that I haven't really heard of many scientists who did that per se. Whereas it was usually maybe people who came more from the arts side who then also wanted to know a lot about science. But yeah. So here, here's what I will say about this in a more in a more positive light. The reason why I do think that there is something true about what she's saying that this is the reason that Humboldt is is uniquely fascinating is that he is in a way along with Goethe, uh, but of course Goethe is known as is a is a poet, whereas Humboldt is known as a scientist. Uh, is that they were the epicentral figures of romanticism in science. And um, so the Romantic movement, I'm certainly not uh, an expert in it. It's not, uh, I'm not a literary histori- uh, historian and that sort of stuff. But it's something I've, I've been interested in recently because I, I really don't know anything about it. It's, it's, it's this, uh, you know, sort of blank spot in, in you know, my, my understanding of, of intellectual history. So, oh, yeah, what, what was that? That does sound intriguing. What, what were people up to there? And uh, I, I put down a couple notes um, on this uh, from external sources uh, one of them, uh, Wikipedia, one of them, this book that I mentioned to you, Isaiah Berlin's uh, Roots of Romanticism, uh, which is actually super duper fascinating to give the sort of intellectual context of what was happening around this time. And just the the, the really quick cliff notes are that so the Romantic period was roughly uh, 1770 to 1850, depending on on how you slice it and which, which country he's looking at. And Humboldt's big adventures and when he was doing his the, the height of his stuff is, is, of course, like right smack dab in the middle of that. And the basic idea of what Romanticism meant, especially from the point of view of, of science, was that the Enlightenment was all about what was common to all humanity to all planetary bodies, to, to the physical universe as a whole. So it's all about these unifying theories. Uh, in the Romantic Age, what one of the sort of the defining characteristics of it was that people started to take a different relation to, to nature, um, to a person's intimate connection with it, uh, and then also to the nature of, of singular genius and, and, and that sort of stuff. And so uh, one of the things that Wolf writes is that, um, quote, uh, he, Humboldt, wanted to excite a love of nature, uh, Humboldt's quote, love of nature. And uh, at a time when other scientists were searching for universal laws, Humboldt wrote that nature had to be experienced through feelings. I believe it's from the, the yeah. prologue. So that's kind of representative of that. And then also, if you look at the Romanticism in Science Wikipedia page, the only people who get, the only figures, the only individuals who get their own sections in that are Goethe and Humboldt. Uh, so there is something to this claim that what people were doing in this time was essentially like, okay, lots of people have been sitting around Europe for a couple hundred years now and really thinking deeply about what they were seeing around them. And now there is this sort of novel inclination, this novel insight to go out into the world and see what else was happening out there 
and if the same concepts that they were building back in Europe also worked in these other places and what they could bring back, um, you know, and all the measurements we hear about uh, Humboldt taking and all the, you know, th- notes that he takes and, and, and plant specimens and that sort of stuff. Uh, it really is this shift about, um, you know, thinking about the world and this on the ground, holistic, uh, very tangible, concrete, and also emotional way. Yeah, I found the emotional part also interesting that, I mean, I, I wrote down a similar quote that I guess I don't have to read now, that where he says something like, you have to feel it. It's not just you know, enough to observe it or whatever. It's interesting, like when you when you were talking about the romanticism and science just there, the funny thing is, like my entire historical knowledge is based on music um, because I did lots of classical music. So it's interesting, like how I was going to try, like how does this relate to anything about the romantic period of music? Like this unifying or whatever, like I'm not sure there was much there. And it's I'm still slightly confused as to how the two really relate. They didn't even relate in, I guess, in terms of time that much because, I mean, 1770 was still a fairly early Mozart and birth of Beethoven, more or less. So, like, that's, you know, the classical period in music. Yeah, I'm so entirely sure. I mean, do you know whether romanticism in the different arts and sciences, whether they're actually related or it's just, yeah. So, basically, I think... So, so no, I wouldn't be comfortable saying, well, this is exactly how all of it uh, relates. But my basic understanding of it is that there are sort of these overlapping sections of like, okay, well, you've got poetry, you've got um, uh, literary novels, you've got science, you've got music, uh, you've got whatever else is is happening. And depending on the country that you're in and the domain uh, of, you know, creativity that you're studying, this is, you know, sort of when it was and that there's things that tie them together. But certainly the the very first thing that Berlin says in this book about uh, romanticism is that no one can say exactly what it is or, or when exactly it yeah. took place um, because there is a lot of heterogeneity in it. And um, uh, I have no doubt that you've touched on one of the, the, the veins of uh, heterogeneous creativity that t- took place in, in that time. Yeah, I mean, especially music. You have Richard Strauss writing romantic music in the like, 1940s or whatever. So that's... Yeah. I also think part of, uh, I think both Wolf and, and Berlin would, would say this, is that there was a shift here that while you could bound the Romantic period and say, oh, you know, here's what they were talking about and interested then, it also is something that's lingered with us in an important way, that all of us today have a piece of, of, of that Romanticism with it, or at least familiar with it and are in touch with it to, to various extents. Yeah, that there, that there was a, a shift here, like a new cognitive innovation so to speak uh that is one of the things that we've carried with us into the modern world so which one is that the innovation oh i mean basically this connectedness to nature uh this interest in individual genius and um a host of related related themes and topics anyway let's let's uh dive into the specifics of it (laughs) since yeah so at least i can talk about concrete stuff that we actually both read rather than just spouting about, about things that don't actually know. I thought that's what podcasts are for. <laughs> talking about things I don't know anything that's, about. That's why I'm so comfortable doing it, is that this is, this <laughs> yeah. is, this is, this is my safe space. Yeah. yeah. One thing I'm just curious what you, th- what you think of the writing, because one thing I noticed, for example, is that... So th- I noticed this when I read the first paragraph of the first chapter, Beginnings. What I find really, in a way, quite cool but in a way maybe also kind of loses a lot of detail is just how quickly she goes through stuff. Um, So for example, the first paragraph you go, when he was born, the date, where he was born, who his parents were, a brief description of basically his childhood, his father dying, his mother being um, distant. um, And then that they were tutored by Lightman things. That's all in the first paragraph. That's like in the first 150 words or something of of the chapter one. And I this kind of continues, right? Like in, in, I mean, chapter two is already them, them going to Jena and meeting Goethe and Schiller and these kind of things. And it's, uh, I mean, in a way, I really like the, this kind of fast pace that it's not something where you spend 300 pages on someone's childhood that's in many cases reconstructed from very vague sources. But in a way, I feel like, especially with the traveling, it seems to me sometimes you lose some of the, the, the details of what it was like to, be there and then i guess it's a trade-off um absolutely 
So I think you're certainly correct that Andrew Wolf is not invested in the exercise of scene building. Mm -hmm. Definitely there are scenes and she describes things that, you know, are like, oh, you know, here's kind of what was happening in the scene. But she's not really doing the thing uh, that a lot of travel writers do, which is like, okay, we're actually going to try and recreate uh, this feeling of of being there. And um uh, certainly a lot of travel writers try to do that. And obviously this book is not a travel book specifically, but you could kind of imagine it going two ways. One is we're going to do the scene building thing, which is kind of a travel writing thing. Or the other thing we're going to do is a sort of plot summary thing, which is closer to the level of description that we're talking about. It's like, oh, this happened, this happened, this happened. And then we're going to analyze it, which would be how an intellectual historian does it. For example, someone like Louis Manan. And... So uh, a book that I read recently on the the travel side, which I think there's a very sympathetic author. Her name is Erica Fatlin. She wrote this great book called Sovietistan and a more recent book. um, uh, So this is about countries that were in the former Soviet Union and everything like that. Uh, And she's not funny at all. But she is uh, uh, she's not German, uh, almost worse, Norwegian. So but the scene building is just phenomenal. And so you can imagine something like that. Or you can imagine something um, that's like a little bit more plot summary. It's like, this is what happened. I'll leave it to your imagination to, to build it yourself. Uh, but this is sort of what it means. And, you know, kind of, I kind of feel like we're in a little bit of a no man's land where it's not quite the, um, you know, historical exegesis that, you, that you'd want from a historian. It's not quite the scene building, vivid imagery that you'd want from a, a travel book. It is very much just a biography. These are the things that happened to him. And this is the order in which they happen. And here's some adjacent facts um, that are, are relevant, but, but by no means the whole picture uh, next to it. So that, that was kind of my interpretation of the style. Yeah, I mean, I, I quite, I think I quite like it. But I, I'm not, I don't think I'm someone who likes authors indulging, is what maybe you would call it, in a negative interpretation in these things. I mean, for example, you do get a lot of details, you know, when they go through the by boat when they travel and all the descriptions of the animals that try and kill them and all this kind of stuff and the mosquitoes there i think you do get a sense of a bit what it was like to be there yeah it's just somehow i didn't expect it i don't know why what did you think about humboldt's early life did anything stand out to you in in his childhood or um i guess early career and that sort of stuff where you see the seeds of who he's going to become uh planted there um, I mean, I feel like there was quite a quite a lot of description of him just being, I think what I wrote down the summary was restless and very lonely. And that seems to be something that, it seems to me you need that kind of personality to be with like three other people for months on your own in the rainforest or something, right? If you, well, in a way, I feel like also being with three people all day is probably a lot of social interaction. But it seemed to me that, I mean, it seemed to me like he was kind of doing the same thing throughout, right? Even when he was studying in this mining thing, when he'd just get up really early and, you know, go into the mining shafts and all these kind of things. I mean, that seemed pretty consistent to me. Yeah, but I, I mean, there's not, I feel like there's also not that much about the early childhood. I mean, of course, they grew up like everyone you read about in a history book, uh, very privileged. Yeah, that's definitely uh, <laughs> that's definitely conspicuous in it, is that, well, what supported all this was the large sum of money that he just always had at his disposal. Well, uh, that he uh, inherited from his mum, yeah, especially. Yeah, exactly. It was this, I mean, he's, he worked, and, you know, obviously he... But I, but I think, you know, you take that, you can take that for granted. It's like, yeah, it's like, okay, especially during this time, that was, that was, that was uh, a point for, for a lot of people. So, yeah, I mean, that's always my, my minor frustration when I read biographies of musicians or composers I really liked. Like, yeah, of course, if you, <laughs> of course they're very privileged. It was 1810 yeah. and they got piano lessons. Like, what would you expect? So, one thing that I was interested to look for in reading the early childhood stuff is that I'm always very interested in people who have this deeply, deeply seated desire to be somewhere other than they currently are, especially somewhere other than where they're from. And uh, I think a lot of good can come from this inclination. Uh, But I also think that if you're on the road as much as Humboldt was, like clearly he had this just insatiable desire to just keep going somewhere. And I think, you know, you can see that on, on the maps uh, that we like the, the, when she draws the lines. It's, it's crazy. She covered some serious ground. Um, and at some point you got to ask, like, what was this guy running from? 
I think there's there's a, there's a sub like at least that's that's a question that like needs to be posed at least at some point. And she clearly she says as much that as his childhood was unhappy, that his father died uh, when he was yeah. nine. Um, and, and that his mum wasn't really what you call a mum. Very cold, very very uh, emotionally distant, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I I don't know that I got a full insight into it, but there's this passage that she wrote that I think really sums up. Uh, so you said restlessness and loneliness. In this passage, I think it was quote from his youth, Alexander seemed to have been torn between this vanity and his loneliness, between a craving for praise and his yearning for independence. Insecure, yet believing in his intellectual prowess, he seesawed between his need for approval and his sense of superiority. I think that that, um, wherever those those things come from, that vanity uh, and that independence, that, that, that sort of fierce independence, those, that, that kind of juxtaposition of that creates a, a kind of engine that propels him forward between wanting to connect with significance to do something great with a capital g um and also to do uh never quite feeling at home in the places where he actually is from where he is is strictly speaking comfortable yeah and i I find that a very fascinating and in many ways uh an inclination that i'm that i'm sympathetic to yeah i mean what i find also interesting is that he seems to what i find so weird and that's you know the first page of chapter two is how much him and his brother changed their life or restricted their life while their mother was still alive. That's something I found really weird. And mm. that, that both of them, you know, were in Berlin and in T. Or not, I can't remember exactly. I know I think he had already gone to somewhere near Dresden to do the mining thing, right? But that was because his mum told him to go there. But then as soon as the mum was gone, it seems like the shackles were just gone and they could just both be whoever they wanted to be almost. So it it seems to me, I mean, it's some, yeah, maybe in some sense his voyage is a bit of a reaction to him being allowed to do what, it, like no one's there to tell him what, what to do or what not to do. But maybe he is overcompensating a little bit on that front by going to South America for five years. Yeah, and I, I can't remember, I don't have any notes on the exact passage, but I do recall him going, maybe this was even after um, the Jefferson thing, but he definitely does go back to to germany i think to berlin specifically and it's sort of like oh man like when do i get to get out of here when do i when do i get on the road again so clearly there's something about yeah the his natural milieu that he finds dissatisfactory that he's he's got this clear inclination to transcend it and to to go out there and, and see, see what else is so yeah. yeah i think that that that's just a really fascinating character trait for me <laughs> what's funny to me though is that that is to me almost something that's uh, not, I mean, I didn't have an unhappy child or anything like this at all. But uh, that's to me something that's very natural. It's kind of like, well, I know what that's like. <laughs> I'm going yeah. somewhere else now. I mean, I basically, as soon as I, you know, as soon as I graduated school, I left. And I mean, I've, you know, I've been back many times. And uh, as I said, like, I, I don't think, I hope in my case, it's not some sort of unhappiness that I'm trying to run away from. I don't think it is. But yeah, I kind of, I have to admit, I kind of skipped over that almost a little bit. The fact, you know, this like, what is he running away from? Because to me, it was more like, well, he had a shit ton of money. <laughs> what else are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> you might yeah. as well just do something that no one else can afford to do. And I, I think it is complicated. I don't think all that inclination always has to come from a bad place. I think you have to ask that question, what are you running from? I think you can also equally uh, as well ask the question, what are you, what are you going towards? And clearly both things were, were at play for him is that he obviously felt uh, encumbered by his home. And he obviously felt that there was something out there that he wanted to be a part of. And I don't think you need full, unhappy childhood uh, or, you know, some some great affliction that you that you want to overcome to go out there into the world. I think it can be uh, derived from, from a lot of different kinds of circumstances. But I do think yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting to just kind of contextualize him as a person in, in that inclination. And I guess, his, for example, his brother, you know, went to Jena, which is, I don't exactly know where Jena is, but it's, let's say, 300 kilometers from Berlin or something. Um, you know, it's it's reasonably close still. It's not, you go to basically a planet that's not been explored by Europeans. So, yeah, different levels of moving somewhere. But yeah, it was weird to me, like, just how much though the loneliness seemed to be a part of it. I mean, in part, it seemed to be, I mean, I wonder, like, later on, she also discuss that he was probably gay right 
I mean, yeah, it seemed pretty obvious that he was that he was gay, but it doesn't seem like he actually engaged that much. In it. And, and I don't know at the time like how frowned 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 upon that was. Um, whether this was because you know his brother had his family and then his children, and he uh, Alexander was then this younger brother, right, who kept writing about him being lonely or something. I wonder whether to some extent that had something to do with it. Yeah. But so yeah, uh, Wolf definitely implies that the evidence suggests that he was gay. And lots of people uh, who are close to him felt that perhaps this was the case. So there's a couple quotes she, she, she pulls from his friends, which was quote, lack of true love for women and quote, sexual irregularities. And then she also yeah. quotes Humboldt himself. Uh, I don't know sensual needs. So Humboldt evidently sort of claimed a kind of asexuality in in a way which um yeah but i wondered to some extent like i don't know if it, you know if it if it was socially seen as very bad to be homosexual at the time then of course he would just say oh i don't care about this he wouldn't say like, i think it's probably you know, safe to assume that it was it was it was highly frowned upon i don't know specifically about germany in, in 1800 but um for the doesn't most part, sound like it would be. <laughs> you know if, if england was still uh legally persecuting people for homosexuality into the 1950s and 60s i'm pretty sure germany in in 1800 would yeah so so in that from that perspective i think him saying i don't have any sensual needs might just be his way of explaining this question that people might have asked him a few times without getting i don't know murdered or something right <laughs> so, i think i think that yeah. that's um wolf's implication is that i think she thinks that that he was gay but we have very scant evidence because everyone was pretty pretty happy to be like, oh yeah, no, there's something a little off there, but whatever. Let's talk go back to talk about the science. Yeah, exactly. And the other the other piece of evidence that she mar- marshals for this is that he was very drawn to strong male figures in his life. Part of it's probably yeah. a father thing because his father died uh, so young. So Goethe, as you mentioned earlier, was about 20 years older than him. And I'm excited to talk about that relationship uh, in a second. But also all the dudes that he traveled with. So that's the other thing you talked about him being, you know, stuck for with, with three, three dudes in the wilderness for, for a period of time. He clearly was infatuated with a, a couple of the, the people he was in, uh, he was traveled with. And it's entirely plausible that that was an intellectual and just the sort of a natural, uh, heterosexual, you know, uh, kind of thing. But there's also a perhaps equally plausible that, uh, there was, there was potentially more going on there that, you know, it just would not have been recorded as a part of history. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, that, that's, you know, also I don't really care about that, but it, I did wonder whether this whole loneliness he kept talking about had in part maybe something to do with the fact that he, that maybe the way he naturally felt wasn't something that would have been acceptable. Yeah. And I, I think that Wolf would agree with you on that. It seems to me that she, that's how she feels about it. It's like, eh, he might've been gay. Not really that, uh, yeah, we exactly. can't really say for sure. Um, not ultimately that important and, and, and not part of the story that I'm trying to tell. But definitely that I think is, I think that's that's an important uh, piece to have a part of the puzzle of, of, of who he is, uh, though we don't have decisive evidence on on exactly what what all that was like for him. Yeah. Okay, shall we talk about Jena and Goethe and Schiller? Yeah. Yeah, really like, oh my God, like what a, what a, what a glorious, uh, you know, relationship these two had. Incredible. Also, let, let's just say, um, so Goethe, probably Germany's greatest poet, sort of uh, similar to like Pushkin in, in, in Russia, that sort of stuff. I'm sure many more biographies have been written about him than, uh, than, than Humboldt's. Yeah. And actually, I'm not, I don't want to promise too much, but I basically have a plan with someone to read. There's a good biography by Rudiger Zafransky that we're probably going to read at some point. on the. And podcast. I'm sure it's going to be absolutely amazing. Uh, and then I guess his most famous work he'd probably say is, is the play uh, Faust. Yeah, which I haven't read. Um, um, I tried reading it. It was way over my head at the time. I, I, it was uh, it must have been in 20, 2017 uh, that I tried, uh, but like it was it was not nearly a serious enough attempt to to, to, to truly to truly get at it. It was more like, oh yeah, everyone talks about this. I want to at least have like looked the the words. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so so this is like this is this mega, just like two of the big intellectual figures of this place in this era just like happened to be uh homies is the, is the upshot of this although to be honest i think at the time at least when it was happening schiller was more the big guy than mm, you know yeah. humboldt was just a young guy at the time like that's that's what's so crazy to me and what 
I don't know, maybe this is what just happens when you grow up rich. Uh, you just know all these people. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. I did grow up rich. You know, there's this whole thing of, I guess, I mean, to be fair, if you have a place of 4,000 people, of course, everyone knows everyone. Um, I grew up in a place with like 6,000 people and you feel like you know everyone there. And that was half the uh, two-thirds of the size. But just this weird thing of like his brother moving to Yena and suddenly being best friends with Shilan Good. It's just such a, I mean, I guess that's how you can meet famous people, just moving to their neighborhood. It's it's totally it's totally bonkers. It's like so I I, uh, I looked at the passage and I'm pretty sure what happened was that Humboldt was his brother Humboldt, not uh, Alexander Humboldt. Him, yeah. uh, it was brother Humboldt and his uh, wife Caroline Renyena, 50 miles from Weimar, where Goethe lived. And they just jot off a note to Goethe, be like, "Hey, you want to stop by?" And Goethe, who is in his 40s and is the most prominent prominent literary figure uh, potentially, what at least one of them in in and you know that that area. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll come by, and that's that's <laughs> how uh, that's how they met, and uh, that's totally bonkers. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, I guess we you know we can get to Jefferson later, but I had the same kind of inclination there when there was this one sentence where it was something like, and then Humboldt traveled to the yes, and he wrote a letter to Jefferson to ask whether he wanted to meet him. I was like, what? <laughs> like, if I go to America, I don't say. Yo, Biden, <laughs> you got a minute? Yeah, be like, uh, send a send a, a handwritten letter to uh, Mar-a-Lago or whatever. So like, uh, President Trump, uh, no. Uh, so let's yeah. see. Yeah. I, I think the thing that struck me about their relationship is that, from what I could tell in, in Wolf's description, Goethe was at a point where he felt kind of conversationally that he didn't have, he didn't, it wasn't connected to people in the way that he, he wanted to. He found, you know, sort of, uh, the, the people around him lacking to some extent, and particularly in the area of science. So it, I think Goethe and Humboldt both seem to find most people, most people they interacted with, dull, um, but found in each other great inspiration. And so Goethe, I think, had been evidently musing on science for a while, but really didn't have the right person to discuss it, because you really do need this expansive mind to both, you know, be at his level in poetry and also be able to opine about about the scientific frontier. And that's where Alexander von Humboldt comes along. And they really just hit it off in terms of, uh, it sounds a lot like Goethe was sort of the, the leader of the two. And of course, so he, him being in his mid-40s and, and Humboldt being in his early 20s, it was sort of him displaying, this is what it looks like to be a massive intellect and to sort of model that for him. And to to say this is what it what it what it what it looks like, and there's there's a few interesting things that 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 I that I marked that I thought were really cool in that relationship that we can we can touch on. But I think that was the that was the sort of the arc of it in 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 my reading of it. Yeah, I agree. And one thing that I find, I mean, so there's this one passage that I found interesting for a few reasons, and it's basically where Humboldt and Goethe go, like they get up at like really early hours. And then, like, trek through the snow to go to this lecture on anatomy. And that was really fascinating to me. So, number one, that people who both were so well off, uh, I don't know how well off Goethe was per se, but, you know, people who, you know, who grew up in this privilege didn't mind, you know, getting up at like whatever, 6 a.m. in the dark and trekking through the snow to get to this lecture. But also, what's interesting to me is that Goethe, you know, he was in his mid 40s or whatever and was already famous and all these kind of things, but he, I, I imagine, like, if 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 Goethe was a kind of a, a model for Humboldt as what it means to be like a famous intellectual, that's probably a really cool thing to show. Like, even in your forties, like, yeah, I'm going to get up early and I'm going to go to the lecture because I want to know about anatomy, even though I'm a writer. Yeah, and that was really cool to me. To yeah, yeah. There's one passage that I noted down from Wolf uh, where she says Goethe's descriptions of nature in his plays, novels, and poems were as truthful, Humboldt believed as the discoveries of the best scientists. He, Humboldt, would never forget that Goethe encouraged him to combine nature and art, facts and imagination. Uh, and I think that kind of puts it on there, is that like, yeah, so Goethe, fundamentally about the the plays, uh, the novels, the poems, all that sort of stuff on the humanity side, but clearly very interested in, in science. And of course, Humboldt went on to work on the, the scientific side of things. But between the two of them, they found that intersection of them in this that, that connects back to that sort of movement of romanticism in in science uh, that I was talking about at the beginning, and um, certainly it, it 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 seems to me like yeah, 
Humboldt was able to attain the heights that he did in part because he saw Goethe and how he did it both in uh, his skill and in his just, you know, uh, how good he was at thinking and creating things. And also in the like, oh, this is what it looks like to be a famous intellectual, an intellectual figure. And um, I think it's difficult to underestimate how much a seeing that that's possible, because I feel like, you know, if you don't know someone who is like that, it's really difficult to imagine what it's like to become like that or what it what it like to, to have that feel like a concrete thing. I totally imagine that even independence of just being wealthy and privileged, having that model um, to aspire to, 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 to use as a template, I can only imagine uh, how formative that was. Yeah, and uh, yeah, just while you said that, it occurred to me that this was also, it seems to me, basically the first time he met someone who had a lot of standing, right? I mean, I don't remember from his, I mean, sure, his parents had money, but I don't remember there being much of a talk about, or was there, about them having like people around or whatever. I don't remember at least that happening. So it seems to me like Goethe might have been like the first actual, you know, he, I'm sure he had like the people who taught him his courses for the mining thing, but the first actual like yeah intellectual giant let's say he ever met and for some yeah i mean that must be great for him also to realize like oh that guy actually likes hanging out with me yeah that must have been after all that loneliness in his childhood probably quite a lot of uh given him quite a lot of confidence and confirmation uh there's also this passage that that i love here um it is it is a a a, a nice scene building passage uh that i'd like to read because i think it, it it just gives um a little bit of insight into kind of what you're talking about of that enthusiasm, that alacrity that they both have. They're both excited about this shit. And they're yeah, both yeah. kind of weird guys who find in each other this 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 sympathy. And so, uh, quote, it was during this period that Goethe began to fling both his arms around whenever he went for a oh, walk. Oh, yeah, yeah, I read that down. Provoking yeah. alarmed glances from his neighbors. He had discovered, <laughs> uh, he finally explained to a friend, that this exaggerated swinging of one's arms was a remnant from the four-legged animal and therefore one of the proofs that animals and humans had a common ancestor. Quote, that's how I walk more naturally, he said, and couldn't have cared less if Weimar society regarded this rather strange behavior as unrefined. Yeah. Uh, and so I feel like that just gives a flavor of like, if you from afar happen to like be walking through your like field or in town or like whatever, and you see like, okay, there's a couple of guys over there and it's Humboldt and, and Gutten. Like one of them's like, you know, got this crazy <laughs> thing going on. They're both going off about these things. I, I, I really loved the, the vividness of that, that image and kind of gives you, I think it's, it's about that. Like, gosh, they were just driven by enthusiasm. They didn't really care whether or not they seemed um, legitimate, but they were just, they wanted, they wanted to be in touch with these things in a meaningful way. Yeah, and I mean, I guess Goethe also then seemed, I mean, I think this is a great example of people, how should we say, you take an idea that's just, <laughs> I don't know, like there's some truth in maybe in what he says, but it's just basically completely silly. And then he arranges his life according to that, uh, or at least a small part of it. So that's kind of funny to me. But what's what's also interesting is just that he he seemed convinced that this was a good thing to do. So he just did it, even though he looked like a complete moron to everyone who saw him. And I, and I love it. That's, that's my favorite thing in, in an intellect is that I think being right, especially for these interesting historical um, characters, is way overrated. Um, whether, uh, the, the far more engaging and interesting thing is, is where they came up with these crackpot theories that their yeah. mind was just going off in all these different directions and making connections between all of these things that no one else thought to connect and a lot of them were heinously, like, ludicrous, like swinging your arms around like a four-legged animal. Um, clearly a, like, ridiculous notion, but also part and parcel to the ability to create these amazing uh, and profound syntheses when they actually did hit the nail on the head. Yeah, exactly. uh, they were able to connect things that were profoundly connected in, in, in this meaningful way that no one else had, had hit upon because they weren't willing to go to these kind of sometimes crazy and, and ridiculous lengths to, to try and do that yeah yeah I, yeah I find that really fascinating too uh shall we talk about the actual travels absolutely yeah, we don't have that absolutely. much time today left but yes um i know i think we've covered about 30 pages so far and so there's 70 <laughs> yeah. pages of, of travel but um i also yeah. I, I i find it hard to talk about travel um in terms of like talking about what people have done because i think one of the easiest ways 
to get someone to say something boring is to ask them about a travel experience. Because when you describe like a travel experience in summary, it's like, oh, we went here, we saw this, we ate this. There's really nothing for the listener to, to, to grab onto uh, in terms of that. And that's why it's so hard to do good travel writing and, and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, because so it's just for the people who don't know, Cody has a second podcast about travel writing, <laughs> which may or may so not be, be any good, but it's, no, it's I find definitely... it interesting, but it's, uh, I guess you set yourself a challenge there. Yeah, it's sort of, um, so there's this famous book, uh, Tree Tropique by the anthropologist, uh, Claude Levi-Strauss, which essentially oh, opens with this, uh, Tree Tropique. Oh, okay. And it's it, this really uh, super impactful book in anthropology in, in which he, uh, partially develops the idea of structural anthropology and everything like that. And it's this super weird book because it's basically just a piece of travel writing, but since it was written by an anthropologist it, and and uh, one of the most influential ones of the 20th century, uh, it 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 has this you know impactful insightful quality to it, and it's an incredible book. And it opens with this line that's essentially like, I hate when people talk about travel stories and when people come back from traveling yeah. uh, with with you know all these things. And yet, this is what I purport to do. It's um, 300 pages of it. Yeah. Oh, I, at, at the very oh, least. Much. But but yeah, so I, I always kind of think about that quote. Um, is that uh, yeah, I I hate when people talk about their travel thing, and yet that's exactly what I'm what I'm going to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'm curious to hear uh, what some of the things that stood out to you in those um, in some of his early travel stuff was. I have to admit, this is not the most important point at all, but this is what stands out to me most. I hate anything that flies around me small insects oh yeah so i would i mean at first because you go like oh this sounds so cool i mean of course you know it's difficult you know it's rough and all these kind of things but then i read this passage of mosquitoes like yeah i'm not doing that i like i don't care how much i'm gonna find out i'm not gonna get bitten by mosquitoes all day like, not happening that definitely is one of those things that it's the disconnect between like you say like oh yeah he took a ship to venezuela and then he went through the jungle and everything's like oh my god that's so cool and then you find out that the entire time he was basically just battling, he was just swatting mosquitoes off his face and covered head to toe in bug bites. It's like, yeah, I like that. I mean, it wasn't even swatting the way away. It was they could sometimes not talk because they'd fly in their mouth and nose. Oh, my God. Like, it was... Um, uh, like, it just sounds... I, yeah. yeah. The, the, it's, it's this thing where, like... I mean, I guess it's the thing with most things where the, the idea of it sounds amazing, but the practicalities of it sounds awful. I mean, here also, like, I, mean, it, I mean, in a way, this whole book what we've read so far should basically never have been told in a book because it could, should have just died should have been eaten by a crocodile or by a snake or been you know when he like almost poisoned himself by getting that poison yeah <laughs> um i mean it's a miracle that he didn't die multiple times along this route so let's see the um the plot summary of this is that he inherits all this money from his mom and yep. he's what still in his early 20s um yeah mid late 20s i think yeah something something around there and he's like okay i know that i want to go somewhere but he totally is uh he he, do he doesn't know where and he doesn't really seem to care yeah, just as anywhere. long as it's somewhere far away and kind of extravagant and exotic and everything like that and so i don't remember all the details of it but the the basic thing that happened was somehow he got the king of Spain to agree to allow him to go to the Spanish colonies in South America, which was pretty much unprecedented for a non-Spanish person to have the king's permission to go undertake such an endeavor. So, and if you look at what then when he went to meet Jefferson, you know why. <laughs> because immediately, as, as soon as Humboldt met someone outside of the Spanish colonies, he told them everything about the Spanish colonies and about all this intelligence that Jefferson wanted. So you know why the king didn't usually allow this. Yeah. Yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about that relationship with Jefferson a little bit. So there's one thing that I wanted to sort of bring up and see, see what you felt about this. But mm -hmm. another thing that, that Wolf does is that she seems to really paint humble as always on the side of the angels so for example yeah, that's like one of the points i wrote down yeah. you know like okay so there's this one thing this is before the 
before the Jefferson thing, but she credits him with quotes, the first insight about human induced climate change, which seems a little generous because what she really is describing is that, yeah, there's human degradation of an ecosystem, which is not the same thing as climate change. Uh, and she calls him uh, the quote unwitting. Well, he did, I think, I mean, he did, I think, link it to a larger thing. Like it wasn't just like, hey, look, this, this river's breaking down or whatever. I think there was a point where he says there's something known that if you get rid of all the trees, it gets hotter and all this kind of thing. So I think, I don't know. I, yeah, but anyway. Fair enough. Um, I Certainly she does marshal evidence. Uh, she does try and convince us this is the case, but... So there's like that sort of thing where she calls him the unwitting father of the environmental movement. And then with the whole slavery thing, it's very clear to Humboldt, according to to Wolf, that slavery is just this, you know, complete atrocity uh, that we should not stomach in in, in any way. And so uh, like the way she tells it, you've got this entirely morally modern person in Humboldt who just happened yeah. to be operating in the 1800s. And I guess I'm just skeptical of that. Like, I just, I, I don't know that I, I buy that. And I feel like, you know, uh, that's a little bit of like post hoc, you know, like her being like, yeah, this guy was so great. Um, which maybe it's true and very cool if true. Um, but certainly doesn't, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to believe, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, this is one of the big points I wrote down and I also want to discuss is that I think I wrote, wait, my point is something like, um, Humboldt seems a bit too good to be true. Is there actually anything negative about him in the entire book? And in the first few parts, I, I, I don't know. I haven't thought about this for too much, but I spontaneously can't think of anything negative in it. I mean, there's something that's not good, like when he's lonely or something like that, or he has a such, but that's not of his fault, right? Like there's nothing here where he really does anything bad. He helps the miners, right? He, he stands in for the, the rights of the miners and tries to improve their working conditions. He, um, constantly, talks about how the indigenous people are really good and they're not being treated well and i really also had the thought like he's he really seems like someone who would be who could live now and not change any of his beliefs at least the way it's written and that also makes me quite skeptical with slavery i think there were a lot of people at the time who didn't like it right it wasn't as if everyone was like yeah slaves is a really great idea so i don't i mean i don't know what the proportions of people would be but i'd i'd imagine Maybe he was unusual because he came from money and thought slaves were bad. But I imagine most people who didn't come from money probably didn't think slavery was the, the best idea. So it's not that unusual. And also with the environment, I guess if he really sees how it's being ruined on a like, yeah, like he's just in the place and sees like just how the place is ruined if you deforest it or something. Like it all makes sense, right? None of this is something where you'd, where it's unbelievable, but just the accumulation of things where he was ahead of his time also struck me as slightly unbelievable some of them yes but all of them it's exactly how i feel about it is that in any, any one case like oh wow that's great good for him what a great guy and then like after uh you know we got through 100 pages where it was just you know kind of uh point after point like that i was like is that really was that really how it was in, in the actual moment and not just a post hoc looking back it's like oh yeah he was a champion of all these things we just happen to believe now that uh were much more fringe beliefs back then or less, yeah less i'm waiting for a story of him helping an old lady over the road across the street or something yeah like it's uh, but is there anything negative in here do you know uh the vanity thing uh, is is what i would say is the okay. main thing that wolf looks at and and says well the guy was clearly Part of his motivation was his own the the accumulation of his own stature, but I don't think she thinks that that's not a that huge bad. part. It's no, it's because it's like okay, well, he did do it, and it's sort of like a you know, like uh, yeah, he was this great figure. Part of what explains you know him becoming a great figure is that he was just so ambitious and everything like that. And so I don't think she holds that against him ultimately. But I would say that that is the thing that comes off as is the thing that she um, takes the most to task for. But again, it's uh, it's uh, in terms of negative attributes. It's not as if he, at least from what I can tell, it's not as if he's using that. As we say, his vanity seems to me more that he wants to be great rather than he wants to be better than others. Right? He doesn't like put other people down because of it or something like like all of the maybe it seems to me almost the the the. The negative parts of him are all personal, and the great things are all about how he affects other people. Yeah. 
which again is like a pretty minor negative thing if he's a bit vain and a bit sad sometimes it's a little bit like oh yeah. what's your greatest weakness well sometimes i just care too much you know yeah, exactly like, it's a bit like uh that. it's one of those like non-weakness weaknesses Anyway, this was, this was most of the stuff that I had. I honestly did not have a ton of notes on the the travel, um, like the the travel stuff. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about about it directly uh, in the next section because I imagine there'll be primarily travel or less. through Russia or the thing, right? That should come up soon. No, that was twenty years later or something. But yeah. yeah, like I, I definitely thought the 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 good to part was that's that's such a huge part of the the book, and obviously upbringing and, and sort of context of, of the times I, I, those are the things that stood out yeah. in this passage and maybe maybe in the next passage we'll talk a little more about the specifics of the, the travel stuff so one thing i wanted to ask is uh where maybe you just being american is more insight than me not being american and that's just about jefferson because i i mean i know that jefferson was a president and that's the end of my knowledge about jefferson outside of what's in this book and i have to say like he also seemed like a really cool guy I don't know, he seemed like, especially when you think about presidents, I mean, he seemed like the kind of guy who, I mean, first of all, he was, first of all, he didn't really want to be a president per se. Um, I mean, he was maybe a bit too much into agriculture and farming. He seemed slightly obsessed with that. Um, <laughs> and answering but, letters from strange German men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Shouldn't he have something better to do? What I found really, I mean, as actually one thing I wrote down, I also love the fact that when Humboldt arrived, there's a solid chance he saw Jefferson's laundry outside his house. <laughs> that was really funny, yeah. Um, but anyway, but what I found really interesting is that he seemed like a really down-to-earth guy who who knew how you know, normal people lived who, you know, was building like all these manual things, was really interested in all the science, was, you know, a farmer himself and that kind of stuff. And he just seemed like a really great, you know, minus the slavery thing. He seemed like a really great guy. Um, I'm just curious, like, what's the general impression of Jefferson? Like, this is literally the first thing I've read about Jefferson, basically. I, I'd say that, that that's uh, an accurate representation of what people generally say about him. I mean, so it's it's tough for me to say because... You know, growing up in the American educational system, as I did um, at the time that I did, which would be really anything up until relatively recently, there's a lot of veneration of, of the founding fathers and everything. There's not a lot of criticality about it um, besides, you know, certain mm -hmm. asterisks about like, well, you know, there was you know, that. The, 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 the <laughs> obvious, the obvious uh, st stuff, a lot of that. And so I don't I, it's not something that I've looked into. It's not something that has occurred to me. Very recently, like, you know, I really want to get to know the the, the, the initial American uh, presidents, that sort of stuff. So I'm very skeptical of my own understanding of them, uh, because I think there's been a lot more change and uh, contextualization and, and more nuance. And like, well, let's actually go back and revisit, revisit it without the whole mythology around it. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm not gonna go on record as saying, oh, and I, I know exactly how it is. But certainly my understanding of him is as a genuine intellectual in many ways uh that, okay. that he really did understand a lot about political philosophy uh, that he really was interested in uh the natural world for example in you know his gardening and, and agriculture and all that sort of stuff i've also heard people say that jefferson is one of the most overrated uh, figures of, of all time um because he is this really big really eminent very venerable figure in american history slash mythology um, so I don't really know, but I think your description of it is like, yeah, he was awesome. Minus the slavery thing. Uh, it was approximately how people uh, talk about it. Yeah. I mean, obviously in this part, there's no, you don't get an idea of whether he actually achieved anything as a politician or whether he was a good politician. But I just, I mean, you know, I guess, especially today, you have lots of politicians who are career politicians who do nothing else. And that's something, I mean, in some sense, I understand it, but it also seems I don't know whether that's a great idea. I mean, he was um, the primary drafter of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, feel free to fact check me on that after after the the show, but I won't. I'll trust you. Um, uh, definitely Wikipedia Jefferson's accomplishments, but I, I do think that he's credited with some stuff. Maybe prior to him becoming president, um, but certainly he was there in the whole 1776 revolution, ch chilling around in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, doing the things that everyone was doing around that time. And I think as a writer and that sort of stuff, he was very well respected and, and, and everything like that. That's my understanding. Again, not going to claim to be yeah. a, a Jefferson authority. Okay. I'm drawing on uncritical, 
acceptance of, of facts from you know yeah but that's kind of what i was also interested in kind of what the general which i think is. is what you were probing for is what do what do what's yeah, the temperature exactly. uh but I, again yeah, all yeah. that stuff's changed in the past really you know uh since whatever 2015 on let's say i think the way we talk about american history in in the mainstream has changed a lot very okay. quickly and i i think that's that's an important change and one that since you know I haven't been in America for part of that time, and I certainly haven't been in the, you know, sort of uh, education system, the primary and secondary schooling system. I don't know how people talk, if they still talk about the way that uh, I grew up with it, or if all of the stuff that we talk about now in the mainstream of sort of intellectual discourse has already trickled down and, and influenced the way that schooling occurs. I imagine it has. I imagine my my impression is is that it has. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, yeah. After reading that part, I thought like maybe I should read a biography of Jefferson. He seems interesting. I think at a first approximation, he was a badass. I think he. I think. I think there is a lot there. And um, if I were going to pick someone from that time, he would probably be the first person to to come to mind for them for <laughs> uh, for me to look into. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I think that's the end then for today. But uh, so this time we read parts one and two. I guess next time we're going to read. Or have read parts three and four. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess if anyone wants to join again, <laughs> feel free. <laughs> feel free to uh, send in reader comments, uh, fact checks, etc. Yeah, if not, then thank you for listening this far. Awesome.